Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Plank the first to help you write more. Plank the second to help you write better. And plank the third to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things. On today's show... I'm going to look at a listener's first page and give them some advice on how they might go about making it better. If you listen to the end, I can share some details about how you can submit your own work and how you can support the show as well, which helps me a lot, and how you can join our Discord community. Discord community always sounds like a hilarious oxymoron to me. Why hilarious is overstating it, but it's certainly a contradiction in terms where you can chat with other listeners, share work and talk about books and writing with, in my experience some very nice people. Perhaps they're just hiding their true colours until we reach a critical mass and then it'll all come out. Right, should we get into it? I see no reason why not. It should be a fun change to just plunge into things without a lengthy preamble. So let's do that. This piece is titled Stained Glass and it's by Bobby. Clack. A straw broom set against a porch post hit the concrete floor. Beatrix jumped. Her hands buzzed, slick with sweat. She wiped them on her crimson flannel shirt and set the broom back against the post. She knocked again at the broken screen door. Her mother's words echoed in her mind so fiercely she rolled her eyes. I don't want you working for a murderer. She laced her fingers over her head and stared at the door, wondering if she should leave. The wind picked up again rustling the canopy of an oak tree in the unkept yard. Then a small twinge pricked her hand. She unlaced her fingers to find a translucent speckled gecko splayed across her knuckles, stubby half-tail ticking against her skin. The gecko cocked its head, licked its left eye and gripped tighter. Beatrix froze. A scream balled up and burned in her throat, muted to a soft shriek. The gecko leapt down, releasing Beatrix from its trance. She reached for the straw broom and, like a berserk shield maiden, chopped at the ground around her. Each blow echoed an angry hiss off the concrete. The gecko wriggled in short bursts to the darkness of a leaf parlour in a corner of the porch and disappeared. She set the broom back, turned away from the door and pushed a loose shock of wiry hair behind her ear. Pulsing waves prickled from cheek to cheek. Hot spots from the broom handle would soon blister. Okay, so that's the piece, and here are some of my thoughts. Clack. So, there are a few true absolutes in creative writing. Don't use your work to... (sighs) So, there are few true absolutes in creative writing. Don't use your work to, through a rather contrived set of circumstances, murder somebody. Um, If you're writing children's fiction, avoid the verb queefed. But I feel reasonably confident in asserting you should rarely open a story with a sound effect. English sound effect words, even brilliant onomatopoeic ones like squelch or boing, are not very good at evoking what they describe perfectly adequate at conveying what the sound is meant to be, for sure. I understand that a clack has occurred, but I don't feel it. 
This is partly because the story at this point comes to us ex nihilo, that is, out of nothing. There's this semantic void, this realm of absolute possibility, and out of it comes the word clack. Is that compelling? Is that a comprehensible unit of action? I don't expect the first word of any story to make sense on its own, but you've placed this word on its own line, clearly marking it out to the reader. Consider this in isolation. And I mean, you might as well write zoom, pachoo, or dingle dongle. You're not leaning into a strength of the medium. The sound of words is absolutely a great pleasure of writing and reading, but trying to represent something in this way is not quite how that works. So we're left with clack on the opening line, and it just feels like someone walking out onto an empty stage at an open mic night, waiting for silence, then saying flatly, joke. As an aside, listeners can't see this, but you've placed clack in single speech marks, which is just bad from a comprehension viewpoint. Someone might be saying the word clack, for all we know. Better, I think, at least, to place sound effects if you must resort to them, and I've used them from time to time, so I'm not some fanatical absolutist on this point, in italics. This distinguishes them from the narrative proper, but makes it crystal clear no one is actually saying them. Which a reader can figure out from context either way, but it takes that extra second longer, that extra unconscious looping back to take a second pass at the sentence. Okay, next line. A straw broom set against a porch post hit the concrete floor. So, no, that's actually already happened. You just gave us clack. Then we get the visual. That's not how sound and light work. And, you know, at the risk of being accurately accused of pedantry, uh, light travels faster than sound. So we see something that happens before we hear it. Uh, So this order that you've put things in has the weird, almost disorienting effect of making it feel like she hears the sound, then a moment later... The thing happens. Clack. A straw broom set against a porch post hit the concrete floor. Remember, the order in which you give us information, both within the sentence and over several sentences, affects how we experience it and understand it. It even implies causal relationships. Consider, Jeff closed his eyes and farted. The bank's windows blasted outwards in a snowstorm of glass. Versus... The bank's windows blasted outwards in a snowstorm of glass. Jeff closed his eyes and farted. The former version sounds like explosive flatulence. The latter sounds like a stress reaction. Sorry if you thought I'd grown in the past year beyond talking about farts, genitals and diarrhoea. I haven't. It is my curse, my cross to bear, if you will. And on this show, I make it everybody's problem. But it also conveyed my point in a semi-humorous way, non Order implies chronology. Chronology implies causality. That's just how human brains work. Sorry, I mean our brains. We're all humans here, normal humans, having a chat about our human propensity towards understanding the world through narrative. Back to the sentence. A straw broom set against a porch post hit the concrete floor. E. Gads Bobby. Hi, by the way. Thank you for this piece. Broom. 
The first concrete noun of this story has not one, not two, but five words modifying it. One before it and four in the adjectival clause after it. Adjectives, just to refresh our memories, are describing words. They tweak and colour the noun, which is the thing or the object or concept. Mostly in English, uh, adjectives come before the noun e.g. the big, nice, green gentleman. But an adjectival clause is a subclause in the sentence that, taken as a whole, serves to do the same job. E.g. Clive, a smelly man of moderate intelligence from Dundee, walked down the steps to the abattoir. There the adjectival subclause is a smelly man of moderate intelligence from Dundee. It modifies our proper noun, Clive, bit of a judgmental narrator there, but you get the idea. Words like Dundee, intelligence and from aren't usually adjectives, but here they're all pressed into service in this little footnote that muscles into the sentence to add detail and to modify the noun. Now, one reason you might want to step in after the noun like this to offer colour afterwards is so the reader understands what or who you are modifying as they read, because you could write smelly, moderately intelligent Dundee-born Clive walked down the steps to the abattoir. That sentence contains near identical information, but we don't have a subject to anchor all those adjectives to heading in. They're oddly harder to retain because without a concrete semantic locus, they're just free-floating concepts. We want a planet for them to orbit. But, 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 but nothing in creative writing composition gives with both hands. Every word added eats up time. It slows the sentence down. It widens the gap between the subject, the main verb, and the object. Also, the principle of chronology we talked about applies here too. The order in which you reveal information about something clearly implies a hierarchy of salience. Now, in our previous deeply silly example about the fictional Clive, who I'm sure is a lovely fellow once you get to know him, he, quote, walked down the steps to the abattoir, end quote, which is kind of nice because we learn he's walking, then that he's heading down, then that he's on steps, then that they lead to the abattoir. So the release of information mirrors his descent until he arrives at the door. In your story, we get clack. Then a straw broom. So we learn of the existence of this object after it's acted. Set against a porch post, hit the concrete floor. No, a straw broom set against a porch post cannot definitionally hit the floor. It's set against a porch post. What you're trying to say here is that it had been set against a porch post, which is a weird way to describe anything by its prior state taking us out of the narrative presence. I understand why you've written it this way, but it doesn't make sense and it jars. Look, what I suspect you were going for was Beatrix has a hand poised to knock, then bang or clack, whatever. She jumps turns a broom lying on the floor. It must, she deduces, have been propped against the post and fallen, but she didn't see that. She was concentrating on the door. She heard the noise. She turned, saw the result, made a causal inference. I don't deny that what I just described is very hard to convey cleanly 
and quickly, especially when you haven't set up any of the surroundings. You're essentially opening with a jump scare without our having any idea of where we are, what the stakes are, and who's involved. It's just bang! Huh! And then you have to go back and create the world. I must say, and this is an affliction which continues throughout the piece, what a welter of descriptors here. Straw broom, porch post, concrete floor. To every noun, an adjective. All we need to know is that a broom hit the floor. Five words. And when you strip it down like that, it's easier to tell if this is information we actually need to know at all, and whether it's an event worthy of being the first line of your story. Because I've mentioned Beatrix, right? I've mentioned her, but she's not actually present yet at the, after these first two lines. No human, no conscious entity is in the story so far. Clack, then a very specifically placed broom falls, uh, making the noise we've already heard. That's another issue with the sentence, by the way. The adjectival clause has got a verb in it, which on a first read sounds like it could be the main verb of the sentence. So it snags us. A straw broom set against a porch post. It half sounds like sat, half sounds like you meant was set. Then we realise the main verb is actually hit. It just comes very late in the sentence. And the object isn't porch post, but concrete floor. But I digress. That's just another reason why the line can not feel great and he might not be able to identify why. So no one lives in this story yet. No human. And, and that, that can work. Stories can be written like that. I've read several novels that open by describing things without there being an obvious protagonist or even a human presence, say, for the implied humanity of the narrator. But here, it doesn't work. OK, next line. Beatrix jumped. On its own, this is a neat little sentence. You knew I was going to say that, right? Proper noun, verb. That's it. That's a complete semantic package it works it gets in it does something very specific and it gets out named character action implication of emotional investment minor conflict all very good and absolutely no cartilage or gristle or eyeballs just prime cuts of semantic load-bearing words not every sentence has to be pared down to clipped journalistic information uh, but it's a good starting point to make sure that you have the skeleton right and to occasionally have neat little sentences like this if you want to write wet, rich, baroque, multi-clause sentences there's something they are going to be thrown into more beautiful relief by having simple sentences studded around them. Um, But this doesn't work for me and it doesn't work because the previous two sentences fail to tee it up properly um, but stylistically, it is much better than the sentences that come before it. In fact, we might as well jump straight into it. I, I did an exercise for my writing courses, uh, which if you haven't done them and you'd like to, they're both available uh, on via my website or just search Death of a Thousand Cuts uh, writing courses. Um, but I did a, one of the exercises I did was where you have to write a scene alternating between high and low detail in your sentences. So some super gnarly specific bit of observation, then something simpler and more expansive like she sat down in her chair or she looked around 
That's the simple version, right? It's definitely not a rule of composition you need to stick to. I don't, and I don't remember ever encountering a writer who does in some strict, absolute way. But it's a useful exercise just to make you aware of the effect of low versus high detail and to make you super conscious of what you're choosing because it always is a choice um, and, and how the two can work in harmony to create this rhythm in a scene and to make space and just to give your readers room to think. Uh, people have shared some of the results from that exercise. I've read some examples and it's often pretty solid writing. It just naturally comes out pretty good, where if you hadn't been told, you wouldn't be able to identify the formula that the writer was using. My issue with this extract overall is that it's mostly high detail stuff. It's all attempted drum fills. There are almost no pauses for breath, no gaps, no spaces, uh, no semiotic lacunae if we're going to get all wanky and academic about it. And because of that, it sounds timid. Paradoxically, high detail, wet writing, when it's delivered as a kind of machine gun hailstorm of descriptors uh, comes off as low confidence and weak. You know, simple writing is bold. It has power. And I love rich, complex, multi-clausd prose. I write that kind of prose. A lot of concepts are complex and rich and nuance and we want to talk about the relationships between different things and we want to be able to weigh them on various scales and we want to be able to compare them and we want to be able to take the reader on a little journey and then turn at the end. I love the musicality of complex or simply structured prose. I, I'm never going to be some kind of absolutist who invades against that. And in fact, it's precisely because I love that, because I love complex prose, that I think it deserves to be shown in its best light. And that cannot be in a kind of briar patch of undifferentiated complexity delivered to the reader with no thought for presentation with no sense of selecting for the choicest cuts, with no sense of, I guess in a filmic sense, picking your shot, knowing when you want a wide-angle shot, knowing when you want an extreme close-up, knowing when you want to dolly towards this one point to follow someone to track someone to do a, a a great crane shot that swoops and zooms into you you want to be able to pick your shots and it's not an attack against extreme close-ups or single take long pans to say that you shouldn't make the entire movie out of them right uh, and I, 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 I'm not knocking any one technique. I'm just saying we want a perfectly mixed cocktail or at least a, a blend of single malts uh, or if you prefer non-alcoholic, if like me, you're teetotal, then uh, your preferred non-alcoholic beverage. But this is just neat paraffin, Bobby. This is just swigging methylated spirits from a plastic bottle. It's, it's too much.
Her hands buzzed, slick with sweat. Weird collocation of images here. Beatrix jumped. Her hands buzzed. See, jumped is a discrete action, discrete in the D-I-S-C-R-E-T-E sense, as in separate. She does a single jump. Eek! Beatrix jumped. But then you followed it up with her hands buzzed, which is like a, a parallel construction, but you don't mean it in the same way. You mean her hands were shaking, but uh, and, and it's a continuous action, right? Her hands are buzzing. But because of the proximity of these two clauses, it sounds like her hands buzzed in this one-off discrete action. It sounds like her hands sort of vibrate like a Motorola with a text coming in. How does she feel her hands are slick with sweat? I, I, if we're thinking about this scene coming from Beatrix's interiority being a tight third person scene, which I think it should be, we, we really want to do as much as we can to lock descriptions into her experience. You only really become aware of having sweaty hands when you, for example, grasp a doorknob and feel the clammy grease of perspiration, the lack of friction as you try to grasp it, the coldness of the metal against your wet palm you know or maybe you touch your face and your hand is wet it's like when I'm running for example I become aware of sweat when it beads on my forehead and starts to roll down my face or when it makes my clothes chafe something makes that sense that sweat salient in my sensory field if there's just been a, a sudden bang, I, I don't think Beatrix's attention would be drawn to her sweatiness. That doesn't seem like it would be the immediately salient experience. That, that, that's something that becomes apparent in downtime, for example, you know, like sitting on the chair outside the office where you're waiting for your job interview or in a situation um, where the clamminess of your hands might be really important. So a character cutting wires on a bomb and feeling the pliers slip in their sweaty palm. Or they're trying to climb a rock face and they need to get the chalk bag out so they can get a better grip. That, that That's something where, where how much grip you've got on your hands can be really important. Now, this might sound like nitpicking, but, well, actually, it's pretty gross if something is infested with nits, right? So there's nothing wrong with nitpicking. But this is the level of detail we need to go into if you want to boost your writing and give it evocative power and emotional strength. Once you've taken these principles on board, and I think a lot of writers abstract them from work and apply them unconsciously. Like when their writing's going well, it's just going well because they're accidentally doing these things or they listen to the music of a sentence and they go, oh, that sounds right. That sounds about right. And they probably might not be able to articulate exactly why the words work for them or don't. But they tend, uh, what, I'm just making these things explicit. Um, my hope is that once you sort of learn them or at least become a little bit more conscious of them, uh, it doesn't mean you're going to start producing perfect first drafts, but hopefully... They can steer some of your writing decisions. So before you write a line, if you want a scene or a moment within a scene to feel very visceral, personal and sensory, you'll ask, OK, what does this feel like from my protagonist's perspective or from the perspective of the character whose scene it is? What do they notice? I think I think that's a perfectly uh, doable, achievable way of approaching writing that isn't too complicated. 
Steve Aylett has a, a, a lovely bit at the beginning of his fourth novel in the Accomplice Quartet, and I haven't looked it up, so I'm just remembering this, um, where a character jumps off a bridge and the narrative says something like, uh, wind rushed up his shirt sleeves. It's, it's a slightly odd but sensory and specific detail that anchors the moment within that character's perspective. We're not looking at it from a distance. We're, we're, getting the, we're getting the feel. We're getting a sensory thing of cold air rushing up that character's shirt, shirt sleeves as they fall. Okay, onwards. She wiped them on her crimson flannel shirt and set the broom back against the post. See, this typifies what I'm talking about. Her crimson flannel shirt. Isn't that crunchy specificity, Tim? Are you not entertained? Yeah, but Beatrix, in that moment, doesn't care or especially perceive that her shirt is a crimson flannel one. Especially not the colour. The crimsonness is I would imagine, irrelevant to her at this moment. She's not going, ooh, I notice my shirt is very crimson today. That's a very externally minded bit of description. That, that's for the reader's benefit. That's for the costume department's benefit, you know. I mean, and this is the first thing, really, that you're telling us about your protagonist, that she's wearing a crimson flannel shirt. Is that a compelling detail that resonates with the themes of the story and what she wants? I'd argue no. And I know some folks will be shuddering like a Pomeranian passing a pine cone at my going over this moment in such detail. Sometimes a pipe is just a pipe, Tim. You don't have to tie every single piece of description into themes and psychological states. That's just an English degree way of thinking. Hmm, what does the tepid mushroom soup on the countertop represent? What does it mean? Oh, it must represent the narrator's empty marriage, etc, etc. And to an extent, I agree with you and to a certain extent I concede that a weakness I have as an author and as an analyst of texts is my propensity to get snarled up in details while missing the big picture not to sound like a scratched record but that is also a classically autistic thing so you may want to you know moderate your personal choices bearing in mind uh, my biases I, I, I definitely get hung up on uh, you know, tiny, tiny bits of text, but I don't argue that makes me a good, uh, makes me skilled is what drives me when I'm looking at these pieces. But what I am willing to go on the line for, to the mat for, what the hill I am willing to die on, or, uh, I mean, it probably won't come to that. The hill I'm willing to sprain an ankle on is, is, is that these seemingly minor choices are heightened in importance and impact when they're placed at the beginning of your story, right? Because nothing else has happened. So they do have a much, 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 much bigger impact. Here, they're not merely adjusting and nudging the images and moods and assumptions you've already built up. They are exploding out of the pitch black. And, and this is going to be the most read part of any piece of work you create. Every novel ever written has a less than 100% completion rate, but everyone, everyone who opens your book and gives it a go will read the first paragraph. Your first page is a load-bearing wall. The reader is consciously or unconsciously making a bunch of rough archetypal determinations about what sort of story is this? What can I expect? Am I going to enjoy this? Is it worth my investing a non-trivial tranche of my finite and only life reading this? 
I'm not implying you should write your first page in a kind of manic flop sweat like Gil, the desperate salesman out of The Simpsons, begging the reader not to leave you so obviously that you scare them off. I see that all the time with first pages that are a welter of polysyllabic words, similes and big assertions of how deeply momentous what's happening is. You can convey confidence through simplicity. But we must have, as our North Star, this idea of music and silence. These are the two things great writing is composed of, music and silence. If a line, an adjectival clause, a word is not contributing to the music of the piece, it is noise, and it is better replaced with silence. Silence being the ink-black firmament against whose darkness the stars shine all the brighter. I should say, though, I do like the rhythm of this sentence, especially the, the second half. And set the broom back against the post. Look how the action there tracks the syntax. That's what I was talking about earlier. There's a little bit of prefiguring there for you. So we get broom, then post. The broom moves to the post. All but one word is a single syllable in that sentence. In that, well, that end of a sentence. And set the broom back against the post. There it goes. Post. I like it. It's clear, comprehensible prose with concrete nouns. I feel like I'm in safe hands with that kind of description. Do you see what I mean about simplicity? You do not have to be giving your huge firework display. 90% of a first page is just proving you are qualified for the job. And part of that is can you describe something simple without fucking it up? Most people who attempt writing can't. Because that's what you're part of what you're doing when you write your first page or so, right? It's just like, all we're doing is like going, hey, 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 I'm a safe pair of hands. I semi know what I'm doing. I'm going to say like, I struggle a lot of the time to clear this bar, right? It's frigging hard. At least it is for me. There are a lot of choices and a lot of potential complexity to describing simple actions. And language is a an odd and inadequate tool for conveying human experience and all our thoughts. It, we are trying to pass the electrical impulses fizzing in our head from one brain to another via a collection of sound waves. Or in this case... We've just got a series of graphemes that replicate sound waves that we're asking someone to spell out in their heads to maybe get them to create an analogous electrical impulse that we had across our brains. It's a super weird, inefficient workaround. And once we have just direct peer-to-peer -peer brain Wi-Fi, all of this will become completely worthless. She knocked again at the broken screen door. So I have one quibble. Broken is too vague an adjective for me. Broken in what way? It's a value judgment, an assessment, rather than a descriptor we can apprehend with one of our five senses. Is it cracked? Crooked? Peeling? Weather beaten? I don't know. I just feel like broken is too expansive and my brain can't do anything with it. It's a status update rather than something I can taste or touch or see. I'm not asking for you to go super over descriptive here. Please don't. You know, I, I feel like my example of weather beaten might be pushing it, frankly, and, and, and probably is still quite abstract. 
and I don't want you to end up with the ramshackle, lopsided, off-yellow, peeling screen door with a faint musk of turpentine. I just feel like broken is too abstract and I don't have a specific fix for you except can you make it more sensory? Aside from that, this is a good sentence. She knocked again at the broken screen door. Imagine if the story started like this. Beatrix knocked again at the cracked screen door, or whatever adjective you end up using there. Beatrix, bam, you've given us a named protagonist. Knocked again. So we have a clear action, knocked. Then look at that rare example of an adverb doing the Lord's work. Knocked again is so much more intriguing than a vanilla knocked. Immediately, it tells us she's been waiting here for some time and her first knock was not answered. Unless, of course, she's come back and it's another day and she's knocking and she knocks regularly. But there's something, oh, look, a little tink, a little tickle of intrigue, a little sousson of mystery and a little anaphoric reference, as we were taught to call it in A-level English language, which I've apparently retained for over 20 years because of the unique way in which my brain is funded. That is a reference to something that happened prior. Only wait, this story only just started, so we can't go back and we can't have known the reference to something that happened prior because the story's only just started. So it gives the impression, a little anaphoric reference, of our joining an already living world. These are small things, but they all add up. And I'm not being sarcastic, by the way. These, I genuinely get excited about these things. Beatrix knocked again. Great. And the order in which we get the subject, verb and object of the sentence lines up with both the logical motion of the action and the order in which you'd probably want us to consider them. I know you didn't say Beatrix, you said she, you used the pronoun, but I'm just suggesting if you did move this to the first sentence, you would, you would use her name. Beatrix knocked door. I mean, with those three words, you can pretty much get the gist of what's going on. Here's our character. Here's her exercising agency in the pursuit of a goal. Knock, knock. Here's the target of that agency. A closed, rather battered looking door. I'm using fancy words to describe something pretty simple, partly to invest what I'm saying with spurious authority, partly for humour's sake. But I hope my point comes across nonetheless. I think this is a really great sentence. I mean that and it's great because it's clear and it contains a character taking clear action to try and overcome a challenge. Not every sentence is going to look like that, of course, but I just think it does a bunch of things. And I, I should say this is also, often it can seem like I'm asking loads from uh, words and you think, well, how can a sentence possibly bear the burden of all the things you're asking for it? Well, like this one does. It does a bunch of stuff. And then suddenly language, as well as spilling out all over the place and being messy, can also be like incredibly efficient. It can contain wheels within wheels, references within references, multiple layers. That's how we get the beauty and irritation of things like irony and sarcasm and metatextual references where I might be nodding towards something outside the text. I mean, all language does that to a certain extent, but it's just beautiful. And, we, and suddenly we contain a whole palace's worth of rooms within a single sentence. It's delightful. And it's one of the reasons I like poetry as well. You can imagine other ways a writer might use this sentence formula to create a solid first line. Wahid slapped dirt from his coat, retreated 10 paces and took a second run at the wall. Not, in my humble opinion, as clean a sentence as yours, but the same principle. Character, couple of actions anaphoric reference, this is Wahid's second run, 
Then we close it on the concrete obstacle that he's moving towards as the sentence is the wall. I'm saying this because you might like to apply this in other bits of writing that you do. Jacqueline put down her knitting at the arrival of the fourth clown. Named character, action, anaphoric reference and closes with the sentence objects. Bit different this one. Jacqueline put down her knitting at the arrival of the fourth clown because the action isn't attempting to overcome a challenge, but rather our protagonist is choosing to turn her attention to an implied inciting incident, the arrival of a, not just a clown, which would also be true. Jacqueline put down her knitting at the arrival of a clown. But this just con it contains, like you're knocked again, it contains that extra bit of information, which is that this is the fourth clown. I like it. We get a bit of character and the implication that the three clowns have already turned up. They aren't in that sentence. Three invisible clowns are like, like the proverbial clown car, just bundled into that sentence and they exist prior to it. Three implied clowns. How cool is that, right? There's only the fourth one. It implies that they've turned up, but it's only the fourth one which Jacqueline decides is a tick. tick that's, a, that's the tipping point. It's like four. I have to actually put down my knitting now, presumably to investigate. Well, so I, I, look, I just think the human brain loves extrapolating from incomplete data sets. The fourth clown has arrived separately to the previous three. Does this imply that they're going to keep coming? You know, is this a pattern that is. Are, are they working together? Or have the the uh, the clowns arrived independently? Why do clowns keep showing up more to the point? You know, are the other three already there and they're just accruing in this metaphorical clown Katamari ball? Or are they arriving serially, like Scrooge's ghosts? Have they been arriving day upon day? We can't help but want to discern and test a pattern that is implied by this, even if we successfully resist that urge, you know, you you can feel the tug. And and, and this semantic lacunae, I said semiotic before, and we can we can just we can just treat those words as interchangeable because it will irritate the linguists who are listening. I I, I just I just feel like it's good fun. This is a great for this is a great format for a first line or the opening to a scene. She knocked again at the broken screen door. It's a nice line, Bobby. I like it. Great work. Her mother's words echoed in her mind so fiercely she rolled her eyes. I don't want you working for a murderer. No, no, no. I hate this. One sentence order is bass ackwards. Give us the statement, preferably in italics rather than speech marks, since no one is actually saying this in the scene. Then the attribution. I don't want you working for a murderer. Her mother's words echoed in her mind so fiercely she rolled her eyes. Otherwise, the first sentence, her mother's words echoed, is a clarifying note on something we don't yet know exists. It's like writing the salty sweet flavour dissolved on his tongue. He took a bite of millionaire shortbread. Secondly, I don't think someone's words really echo fiercely in your mind like this. That's a convention you've borrowed from television and it feels false and silly here. Thirdly, that like this feels like the formulation that's used in Pokemon whenever you try to ride a bike somewhere that you're not allowed to. I, it's something along the lines of the professor's words echo. There's a time and place for everything, but not here. I'm 
pretty sure I should. I feel like as an autistic man with a special interest in Pokemon, I should know that off by heart. But anyway, fourthly, rolling your eyes is something other people perceive. We rarely notice it when we're doing it ourselves. It's a, uh, I'm not sure I, I'm ever conscious of rolling my eyes. Um, it's an external description of a character through whom we're supposed to be experiencing the scene. And suddenly we've got this tonal break from buzzing sweaty hands to someone rolling their eyes and going, mm. it's like she's gone from being hair trigger crap your pants terrified to sort of tutting and shaking her head. She laced her fingers over her head and stared at the door, wondering if she should leave. I know body language analysis is bollocks, but lacing one's fingers over one's head feels like quite an expansive, confident pose. Or at least it's, it, it implies boredom, you know, you're exposing your chest. It's what I would do if I were being performatively bored at a meeting or trying to look smug, not if I were standing two feet away from a battered door on the porch of a spooky old house, shaking and sweating. The wind picked up again, rustling the canopy of an oak tree in the unkept yard. Here's a place where I don't think you should use again. It doesn't add anything. It doesn't increase tension and it's not helpful information. The wind picked up again. Of course it's been windy before. That's the nature of weather. It oscillates. Um, you know, it's not like if you wrote the wind picked up, the reader will assume that this is an unprecedented meteorological event. <laughs> like we understand the sun rose. I better put the sun rose again. Otherwise, I'll think this is the first day. I'm not sure you have to specify that the oak tree is in the yard either. But if you do, don't say the unkept yard, which breaks the cadence of the line and is describing via a negative, the absence of keptness. And, and, it's, and it's just an evaluation. Again, it's a, like broken. It's just an evaluation. The good, the good yard, the bad. The, it's just why? Why do we need? Why do we need you to do like a trip advisor rating on it? The three stars at most yard. Look, fine, if you want to spend a line describing tall grass or weeds or maybe one of those little tykes, cosy coupe plastic cards with the cars with the red chassis and yellow roof that seem to be lying on its side in roughly 30% of all British gardens during the 1990s, you, you can do that if you want to suggest an unkept yard, but unkept on its own is just a value judgment. It's a note for you. It's not a description. That's not... I don't want you to... It, the evil character walked into the room. No, you have to show them being evil and allow me to deduce. Huh, here's a character that I don't quite trust. Like, do the work. Show, don't tell. People in against show, don't tell as a piece of writing advice now because it's trendy to. Um, but they're wrong. They're talking out their asses. You should show, not tell. Uh, when When you take it as a... A small, uh, a, a, a small, a, a little note that suggests what I'm about to say. Don't just say "show don't, don't tell" is bad advice, and here's why, and then just make up what it refers to. You have to actually play with it honestly. Show don't tell. It means if it's desperately important that we take a moment to view this garden and to form an opinion on its status, pick out such details that we independently conclude. Golly, that sounds a bit unkempt. Don't just tell us it's unkempt. That is a fail. That's not writing. That's a Wikipedia page. I'm not even sold that rustling works as a transitive verb. 
I'm not sure that the wind rustled the canopy so much as the canopy rustled in the wind. But that's three or four down my list of concerns, so let us move on. Then a small twinge pricked her hand. You don't need to start a sentence with then. Then a small twinge. As I've already said, the order in which you tell us stuff implies chronology. I've been a bit of an absolutist on this in the past, you know, arguing things like one should never use suddenly. Look, you are free to make your own choices, but except where it adds an aesthetic flourish or it's necessary for pacing, don't start a sentence with then to mean next. Because if a sentence comes after another sentence, there is an implied then or next. That's just how time works. You know, you're not manufacturing cocaine. You don't have to cut your writing with laundry detergent to bulk it out. A small twinge pricked her hand. Is there such thing as a big twinge? Aren't twinges intrinsically small? It's like when I worked in a pub and one of the bar staff's friends had just given birth and I asked the child's gender, as was the fashion at the time, and she replied, she had a small boy as if I might have thought her friend had extruded a fully formed 11-year-old. Do twinges prick? What is it? A twinge or a prick? Steady now. I, I just think these are different things you're describing. It's, it's like writing a wet splash dusted her cheek, or an itchy tickle impaled her scapula. Like, I know what you mean. I, I get what you're gesturing towards when you say a small twinge pricked her hand, but I feel like a Bletchley Park cryptographer. I, I, I feel like it should just should be easier to understand. She unlaced her fingers to find a translucent speckled gecko splayed across her knuckles, stubby half-tail ticking against her skin. I mean, like, yeah, this is nicely written. It's surprising. And what story isn't made better by the introduction of a gecko? I'm not even joking. I think this is kind of cool and a nice opening bid. It's different. It's visual. I believe that little sensory jolt at the end. I'm not sure ticking is the best verb, but this feeling of a rough little tail brushing her skin. Yes, sure, that is neat. It's cool. A scream balled up and burned in her throat, muted to a soft shriek. This is not how human vocal cords work, but even if it were, there is no such thing as a soft shriek. Maybe you could get away with a scream balled up and burned in her throat. Maybe the alliteration of balled up and burned sounds good. It's just weird because the scream is the subject of the sentence with agency. It's the actor in this. The scream balls up and burns. But it's only once that the scream is introduced that we're told it's, it's not actually a scream at all. But the urge to scream. So if you're imagining a scream, not unreasonably, unimagine that now, because actually what comes out is a, quote, soft shriek, end quote, which isn't a thing. It's like saying an insignificant catastrophe or a subtle goose. Don't try to water down words with, like shriek with adjectives when we already have cry, whimper, yelp, whine, mule, croak, murmur, and many more. It's like sellotaping feathers to a guinea pig and putting it in a miniature hang glider when what you really wanted was a budgie. The gecko leapt down, releasing Beatrix from its trance. Don't add bits of editorialising like releasing Beatrix from its trance. For a start, the trance is hers, not the gecko's. Also, maybe this is just me, but it sounds weirdly sexual. 
Maybe I have a thing for geckos. That's fine. I certainly found Randall Boggs. Uh, he, um, he was a compelling villain in Monsters, Inc., although I wouldn't say my feelings stretched quite to romantic attraction. But yeah, th- th- this just feels unnecessarily purple. The gecko leapt down, releasing Beatrix from its trance. I Just describe what happens. Don't add this fancy gloss on top. We're going to see her being released from her trance. We see, you know, what when what happens next happens. You don't need to explain it to us in a pawny way. She reached for the straw broom and, like a berserk shield maiden, chopped at the ground around her. I have no idea of the tone you're going for here, but as much as like a berserk shield maiden is by no means a hackneyed or obvious simile, it's very heavy-handed and distracting. It feels like you're going for this goopy, goofy over-the-top comparison because you don't have faith in what's happening in the scene. It's just, it's, it's too much. Uh, and I don't know if we're supposed to be feeling tension or it's supposed to be absurd, if I'm supposed to like Beatrix or she's supposed to appear ridiculous in this moment or a mix of all those things. And again, this is partly a question of perspective. Saying she's like a berserk shield ma- maiden is not actually how she feels in that moment. It doesn't reflect her feelings. She's not experiencing herself as... She's not thinking as she tries to whack the gecko. I'm rather like a berserk shield maiden here. It's a very external, ironic, detached viewpoint. It's someone observing who has no investment in what's going on, who doesn't really care for her very much. It's a humorous, outlandish comparison. But even if you were going for humour, I I think it would be too much. Comedy arises from honesty and surprise, exposing contradictions in the everyday, gaps between perception and reality, and subverting expectations. This is just presenting someone, then going, oh, they're like an amusing archetype. And I just don't think that's very effective, even when comedy is your main goal. Hot spots from the broom handle would soon blister. Here on the last line, which I've just skipped to, Are you suggesting this is a straw broom but with a metal handle that has become so hot in the sun that Beatrix is holding it for a few seconds, brings her hand out in blisters? Why hot spots? Why are only a few selected parts of the handle hot? If this is in an area with a climate with sufficient heat to burn your hands if you touch something metal, why on earth would residents have brooms with metal handles and why would Beatrix not have figured that out by now? I mean, I can kind of make sense of this a bit if I do some detective work on it. Maybe it's an old broom. Maybe the handle has places where the paint has flaked away, exposing the bare metal, which, despite being bare, has not rusted over because that would stop it from heating up in quite the same way. And maybe those areas of exposed metal where the paint has fallen away get particularly hot, hence hot spots. But the gecko has just scurried into a pile of leaves in the dark corner, which implies autumn. So I'm confused and and not in a good, compelling way. And look, Bobby, this is potentially an arresting opening scene. Somebody knocking on the door of this old rundown house that we don't know anything about. And there's geckos or a gecko crawling over it. Um, You described the gecko as translucent at one point, by the way, which implies light can shine through it. Maybe that's a thing with geckos I've never encountered it personally, but I'm not a a geckoologist, but it felt weird. But I feel like the scene doesn't know what it wants to be. It lacks focus. It's not concentrated through the viewpoint of the protagonist. It distracts itself with this slapstick over-the-top gecko incident. 
Honestly, I would much prefer it if Beatrix was creeped out but fought back her shock and fear. Or if she just liked geckos, you know, I, does she never seen one before? So I, I, I'd quite like to see her making a small win and I'd like to be able to root for her a bit. I, I, I like the gecko, to be completely clear. I'm not saying you should cut it out. I'm just saying the tonal presentation felt off for me. But what I really want is just for you to give us the character and her problem. She's knocking on this door. Is anyone going to answer? If no, then we treat it as a try-fail cycle. Right, no one's answered her second knock. What does she do? Does she give up? Does she knock again louder? Does she creep over to the window and peer in? Does she call out for someone? If this is someone she's working for, is she expected to turn up here for work today? In which case, is there a tension? Is she going to get paid? Does she have a responsibility? How does she deal with these things? I, I, I want to see that tension and I want to see her making interesting choices that reveal her character. You can give us things like the gecko or a broom falling over as she meets and responds to these obstacles. Anyway, look, those are my thoughts. I hope that was all in some way helpful. Thank you very much, Bobby, for submitting that. It was uploaded to our Discord server, actually, where listeners to the show can discuss writing and books and this podcast and share work and get feedback from other writers. I'd, I'd love to have you there. And I'm speaking in the uh, plural sense, contributing. So um, if you'd like to simply go to the show notes of today's episode, that's the little description box under the episode. There's a link there where you can join us. If you don't have the Discord app, it's free to make an account and download it. It's just like a closed little message board where you can join and ask questions and hopefully get support and support other people. But what about you, Tim? I hear you cry. How can we support you, you darling selfless man? Glad you asked. First off, I'm an author. That's what I do. That's how I earn my living. Please buy one or more of my books for you or for your friends. I have two novels, The Honours and The Ice House, and two non-fiction books, We Can't All Be Astronauts, and my latest, Coward, Why We Get Anxious and What We Can Do About It. It's not It's not self-help. Despite the title, it's not actually self-help. It's uh, quirky first-person narrative non-fiction with a little bit of science in. Supporting me by reading my books helps me continue doing the thing I love, which is right. Not that you know from listening to this podcast that it's something that I love, but it's something that I care about deeply and it's hugely meaningful to me. And I just appreciate it so much when people uh, help me out by supporting my career. Um, secondly, you could drop me a few beans direct into my digital guitar case. That's at ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare. Link in the show notes. My coffee page is what helps support the podcast and keep the lights on here. Finally, you could subscribe to this show on SoundCloud or on whatever podcatching service you use. Leave us a star rating if it allows reviews. Maybe leave us a one or two line text review. It's all handy and it helps other folks find me. That's it. We've done another episode. I hope you're well. Please take care. Look after yourself. Oh, and if you want to submit stuff, you can also... You can also um, just met or just let me know how you're doing. And you don't want to join Discord, you can go to my website, timclapart.co.uk. There's a little email me or write to me button. You can click on that and you can send me an email. I read them all, even the ones I don't reply to. Thanks. Hope you enjoyed today's episode and I hope you have a wonderful week of writing.